From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's medical aid and dying law is at the center of a court fight. A doctor at a religious health care system was fired after consulting with a terminally ill patient. Here from both sides today, the doctor and the hospital. He fears a long and drawn-out death. He had observed the lingering of his mother in particular, and he did not want to have that kind of death. It's a tough diagnosis, but there are lots of options, so full cancer treatment, hospice care, all in the Christian tradition. Just the one thing he's asking for, we find morally unacceptable, and we're just simply declining to participate in that just one thing in any way. What might the legal repercussions be? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, we'll hear from a doctor who was fired for help she gave a terminally ill patient. We'll also hear from the health system that fired her. Here's how this unfolded. A patient came to Dr. Barbara Morris asking about Colorado's End of Life Options Act. The doctor knew it wouldn't be easy to proceed because her employer, Centura Health, considers aid in dying morally unacceptable. The Catholic and Adventist health system laid that out in her employment agreement. She and her patients sued to challenge that position. And then, last month, she was fired. We'll hear from the CEO of Centura, which has 15 hospitals in Colorado shortly. First, Dr. Barbara Morris. Thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. We'll get to the legal battle in a moment, but I'd like to start with this patient, 64-year-old Neil Mahoney. He was referred to you earlier this year. Uh, You're a geriatrician. He'd already been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. What was his prognosis when he came to you? You know, sometimes I wish we were better at prognosis than we are. His oncologist told him at the time of the diagnosis that if he did not do any treatment, no chemo, he had three to four months to expect. And at most, even with chemotherapy, he was looking at 12 to 14 months. Of course, lots of people wrestle with whether even to go through chemotherapy. Yes. uh, If that's how much it extends life. Uh, Why did he come to you, a geriatrician? He came to see me because he was seeing uh, the nurse practitioner who I partner with. And he was requesting information about medical aid in dying. As a nurse practitioner, uh, she is not able to participate in that program at all, and she suggested that he come and see me for consultation. So Colorado's End of Life Options Act passed in 2016 with 65 percent of the vote. It allows patients whom two doctors determine are terminally ill to self-administer lethal medication. Uh, Mr. Mahoney asked you about this. What were his reasons? Well, at that visit, Neil and I spent a lot of time talking about his current situation, his past history, and what his quality of life was at that time and what he wished it to be. He fears a long and drawn-out death with severe symptoms. He had observed the lingering of his mother in particular, and he did not want to have that kind of death. He didn't want it for himself, and he didn't want it for his family. He was well-informed about the end-of-life options, and he wanted to talk about the possibility of medical aid in dying. Medically, are his fears of a painful, prolonged death justified? 
Yes, they are. Now, we do our best in many different ways to control symptoms towards the end of life with both palliative care and eventually hospice care approach. And presumably to bring down pain. To bring down pain and suffering. The problem is we can't always achieve that. Perhaps you knew that you were getting into sensitive territory here, given your employer, Centura, their view on end-of-life care. What did you understand the constraints to be? I knew the policy that Centura had published early in 2017 after the statute was passed. I told the patient and documented in the patient's medical record that Centura policy prohibited me from participating in medical aid in dying. At any stage? Correct. Not just prescribing the medications, but having even those initial conversations? Correct. I did tell him what I knew of what health systems facilities might be able to offer medical aid in dying for him. What happened next? Neil told me that he was not interested in going outside of our system to another system. He, to, he felt an affinity towards you. Uh, he felt an affinity towards me, but actually also to St. Anthony's Hospital. And he had had some experiences at university that weren't that positive for him. He didn't want to drive there. He didn't want to go to the two other places we knew of. And he was upset and frustrated. And what was your response to that? My response was that the Centura policy prohibited me from participating in medical aid in dying and that I would speak with an attorney who was well-versed in end-of-life issues and, in particular, Colorado Act. And is that how the suit came about? Yes. You are essentially claiming that Centura's policy is too broad because Colorado's law does have an opt-out. It allows hospitals to prohibit its doctors from prescribing aid-in-dying drugs for use on its premises. Mr. Mahoney wanted to take them at home. You say that should be permitted under the law. Do I have that right? Absolutely. You knew their policy was based on moral principles, though. It can't surprise you that a Catholic hospital would object to aid-in-dying, no matter where in the process it is. Is there a question in that? Well, how about responding to the polemic? (laughs) You must have been aware that a Catholic hospital has certain views. Yes, and I think there have been many good questions raised about that. I did try internally to talk about the policy and see if we could make headway in understanding the statute and the policy and coming to some agreements. Trying to bridge the gap between the state law and the, and the policy. And, the policy and that those internal efforts were unsuccessful. So I was left in a quandary. I was in a practice where I was taking care of some very frail, complicated patients, a practice that I actually liked very much with staff who were doing a fantastic job, some patients who I'd been taking care of for a long time. So the question that has been raised of, well, why didn't she just leave? Go to another system that allows for this. It was very complicated for me. I think it's a good question, but it was it's a very hard question for me. And in the end, even if I had left, Neil Mahoney aside, even if I had decided to leave ahead of Neil, it wouldn't have answered what I believe still needs to be looked at. This gap between mm-hmm. the hospital's policy and state law... What to you is the danger of that gap between a hospital policy uh, being, in a way, more draconian than a state law? 
Well, draconian is a good word because it, you know, for me it implies that the corporate employer can interfere with the doctor-patient relationship. In this case, the corporate religious employer. Yeah, and let me give you a tiny bit of background. Um, I've worked as an employed physician my entire career. I've worked university. I've worked for Kaiser. I worked for what was then Group Health in Seattle, one of the first, you know, HMOs ever. And in all of those years, I might have people tell me how many patients I should see a day, who my medical assistant would be, what color the carpets are. But until this, I have never, ever had an employer tell me what to do with my patient in the exam room. And that is what is at risk here. I guess I, I'd like to come up with a metaphor here or a simile. What is something that you object to strongly? To throw out your wedge issue, right? Is it the death penalty? Is it... Well, you could take the death penalty. You could take injustice. You could take what I just saw serving as a volunteer on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota in terms of poverty and history. Of... Right. So these these are things that disturb you deeply, yes. right? Yes. And uh, I think someone from the Catholic perspective might ask, well, imagine you were asked to participate in something that furthered an injustice you saw. I guess I mean to say uh, that you are in some ways asking a Catholic hospital to find compromise in something they don't see compromise on. No, I disagree, actually. I don't think that's what I'm asking. I don't believe a faith-based organization, or actually anybody, has the right to impose their faith on somebody else. And that's what I'm standing up about in part. I'm also standing up for the patient, the patient's right to a dignified death at a time that he wants that alleviates his suffering. And I think in all the swirling around of conversation here, we're forgetting the patient in this. What are your conversations with Mr. Mahoney like these days? Are you able to be in touch? Yeah, I think that we have to have great admiration for Neil. And um, you know, I feel I feel very honored to have been his physician and to now be his friend. Uh, this is a man who is articulate. He has a devastating situation, and yet he is trying to help others understand that. Um, I think that he is doing as best as he can medically at the moment, and I feel blessed to still be involved with him. What do you see as your future? Is your goal to work once again for Centura? No. You didn't hesitate with that answer. Uh, I've had a few weeks to think a lot. I had thought a lot about this over the summer when we first decided to bring the complaint. I never imagined that my employer would act in a way that was so abrupt and cause difficulty for so many people. We should remember that it was not only Neil who was hurt when I was fired, but my hundreds of other patients as well. 
many of whom are in, you know, very tenuous situations, and also my staff who were left holding the bag. Do they continue to be employed by Centura? Yes. They do, okay. So you've got a lot on your shoulders beyond your own career here, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But let's just say again, I don't mean to be a broken record, but I will be. It's not what's on my shoulders, right? We're talking about a human person here. Dr. Morris, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Dr. Barbara Morris was fired by Centura Health after filing a lawsuit to challenge its ban on discussing medical aid in dying. Her patient, Neil Mahoney, is also a plaintiff. He didn't feel well enough to join us. Now Centura's CEO, Peter Banco. Peter, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me today. So just a little background. Earlier this year, the patient, Neil Mahoney, who has terminal cancer, asked Dr. Barbara Morris about medical aid in dying, which is legal in Colorado. Dr. Morris told him she was prohibited from prescribing those drugs by her employer, Centura, and that if he wanted to change that, they would have to sue. And that's what together they did. The doctor did not prescribe any aid in dying medication. Why fire her? Oh, that's a great question. So we ask all of our caregivers to abide by a code of conduct uh, just to align our mission and values with actions and behaviors. For our physician partners, in this case, Dr. Morris, she signed an empl- a physician employment agreement, so a formal legal agreement with us. And we asked the, uh, her to abide by a similar code of conduct, which included not providing any services that are in violation of the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services which uh, you have to read are complicated and nuanced, but the basic thing is included any intentional hastening of a person's natural death. So in and of itself, filing the lawsuit uh, did not violate her employment agreement, but she did, as part of that process, publicly admit through an affidavit that she expressed her disagreement with the ethical and religious directors and expressed her intent to violate the ERDs, and that breached her employment agreement, and that is why we terminated her employment. The patient, Mr. Mahoney, has terminal cancer, as I said, apparently watched his own mother die painfully from cancer. It's one reason that he's interested in end-of-life options. Under moral and religious guidelines, then, what kind of care would you direct? Yeah, I I feel for Mr. Mahoney with his terminal diagnosis and the challenges ahead for him. I lost my father when he was 53 to a brain tumor and my father-in-law just five years ago to pancreatic cancer, and my wife and I were caregivers to both of them at the end. Sorry to hear that. Um, It's a tough diagnosis, but uh, there are lots of options that we offer. So full treatment, full cancer treatment, palliative care, pain control, comfort care, hospice care, all in the Christian tradition. Just the one thing he's asking for, we find morally unacceptable, and we're just simply declining to participate in that just one thing in any way. Do you think inherent in that view is that some amount of suffering is necessary? Yeah, that's a, that's one of those religious discussions. So, you know, everybody deserves a, a birth and a death full of grace, and suffering is part I think probably a necessary, unfortunately, part of the human condition. And when we face death, 
we confront things like suffering and pain, isolation and what's next and fear. So uh, we encourage our physicians to have that full and other caregivers to have that full conversation so that we can walk with people in the journey and there's just not only one option to, to death. Do you agree that your decision here conflicts with the Colorado law? And the, re- the reason I say that is that the Colorado End of Life Options Act indeed has a carve-out for religious institutions like yours. The carve-out is this. Those hospitals, those systems may deny this kind of care if it happens on their premises. Uh, That is, you don't have to be a party to the actual demise of the person who self-administers the drug. That's the carve-out. In this case, there's no indication that the patient would have taken the drugs on your premises. So do you acknowledge, and I know that you think that there are larger legal issues here, but do you acknowledge that Centura's decision violates Colorado's law specifically? No, we disagree. We think the act itself is unclear. So it permits providers to opt out, and many Colorado hospitals and physicians have opted out based on their personal moral or values, as well as based in the Hippocratic tradition not to do any harm. We opted out because we promote and defend the sacredness of every human life. So we're asking the court for clarity so that the law works. The act itself is not just taking a drug in your home. There are a whole bunch of things that happen in our facility that facilitate that beforehand. So the conversation around it, the prescription of the drugs, how to take the drugs, how to manage that process. So there's only really, in our view, one small part of the actual act that takes place outside of our facility. The rest takes place in our physician offices, physician clinics. And, you know, we don't think this case has merit because it it violates the free exercise and establishment clauses of the First Amendment. It violates our protections under the Civil Rights Act, and it goes against what we think is established case law. I am curious, a lot of the healthcare providers in Colorado are religiously owned. Do you suggest then, if, for instance, Centura is allowed to tell doctors you can have absolutely no connection to the Colorado End-of-Life Options Act as an employee, do you suggest that we'll enter a world in which patients before they ask for a particular procedure, are going to have to, like, shop and find out who owns this particular medical facility or who owns that one. And is that onerous? I don't think so. I mean, the physicians in our employment are less than 10% of the doctors in the state. Most doctors in Colorado are independently practicing that we don't have any contractual relationship with, so it doesn't impact them. So I, I... I don't think that's an issue. We're just asking them to clarify the law so that individual doctors who this violates them morally, personally, their Hippocratic oath or religiously, and organizations like ours have clarity around opting out. It's it's really interesting to hear a CEO say that his hospital system and his doctors are are not that big a part of the market. But it's true that Centura's hospitals are a significant presence in Colorado. We've, yes, we've been here since 1882. So in a way, we pioneered healthcare in the state. So we are a significant portion of the hospitals 
in terms of the number of physicians that are under our employment versus private practicing, that's a smaller number. Is it possible that what you have here is actually like more of a labor dispute? In other words, it, it strikes me that the doctor and her patient sued Centura while she was still in your employ, and then you fired her. Like, could this be seen as retribution? Um, I don't think so. I mean, she, I think her her actions and statements in her affidavit are very clear from an employment perspective. Um, you know, I have a similar agreement. So if there are things that uh, Centura as an organization, being an Adventist and Catholic ministry, asked me to do, this is me personally talking, and they are so antithetical to who I am as a person, I would go work somewhere else. I think that's probably the bigger issue here. Is it at all part of your plan to get the entire law overturned, for instance? Um, do, do you wish that this were off the books entirely? Help me understand the scope of this. We didn't bring the lawsuit. So the last thing I want to be spending is community dollars in, in the court system on lawyers and, and other fees. So we would like the federal court, district court, to rule on this. Uh, be done with it, and we uh, they provide the clarity we need, and we would like Mr. Mahoney to get the care that, that he needs. Centura does not currently hope that Colorado's End of Life Options Act is overturned in some way altogether. Uh, we believe that um, the actions in the act are morally unacceptable. For Centura, not necessarily for everyone? I'm not, yeah, I'm not telling others what they can and believe or should do. We just believe it's morally unacceptable. I would just say Mr. Mahoney's getting lost in all this, and we feel for him, and he, he needs to be put at the forefront of this discussion, not all this political and religious um, discussion. How's he getting lost in this? He's the one filing suit. Yeah, I so read the read the articles. It's It's become more about the attorneys and the Constitution and court venues than it has about his care. And the longer this drags on, the longer he doesn't get the care he wants and needs. Peter, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Peter Banco is CEO of Centura Health. It's involved in a lawsuit over Colorado's End of Life Options Act. Earlier, we heard from the doctor who filed that suit. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with more from Plastic Week. This is CPR News. Over the years, Buck Angel has made a big name for himself in the adult film industry. And now his new career in California's legal cannabis industry comes with an important mission. That's why I started my company, so that we could educate people around cannabis and why it is so important, especially for the LGBT community. On the latest episode of On Something, Buck Angel and the untold story of medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Plastics. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Plastic. Plastic Week continues now. You know where a ton of single-use plastic shows up? At music and sporting events. You want a drink and get handed a plastic cup. 
Well, Ball Corporation in Boulder wants to change that. They've rolled out aluminum cups at CU Stadium, Folsom Field. Sebastian Seedoff at Ball is behind these new cups. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? I'm very excited to be here. Um, you know, I'm new to Colorado, so this is very special to me. Ah, we're glad to have you on the show. And I just have to confirm something. Your title is General Manager of Aluminum Cups. Do I have that right? Yeah, however unconventional it is, that's correct. Okay. Uh, photos of these cups are deceiving because they look almost like heavy-duty um, metal thermoses, but that's not really the case, right? No, it's not at all. And, uh, you know, whenever we show it to customers, stakeholders, and consumers, they're always amazed when they hold it in their hand first. And that's really where you realize the true power and potential of this innovation. It's, you know, it, it weighs around 20 grams. Um, so it's almost like, it, it's almost analogous to like a solo cup, you know. So so that's the amazing part of it. Um, you know, it becomes very intuitive as a disposable solution like that. Does that mean that it's weak? It's actually not weak because it's metal, right? So it's certainly much more sturdy than paper or plastic. Um, so, you know, so there's definitely some durability benefits to it. I, I find it fascinating that these cups are aluminum. They look, as I said, quite reusable. Uh, you say they're sturdy, but they're they're meant to be single-use they are. So it took us about seven years to design this, and it was really focused on being a disposable solution, right? And that's because aluminum is the most sustainable substrate in the world, and you know, and, and there's all kinds of other thoughts that went into that. But essentially, it was designed as a, as a disposable solution. Now we realize that given that it's metal, that the, some consumers may take it home, uh, it's not dishwasher safe. Uh, it's safe to reuse the night off, if you will, or to refill it. But it's it's clearly designed as a disposable cup. Okay, we'll get back to that because I, I want to pick up on something you just said there. Uh, aluminum is the most sustainable substrate, I think was the word you used, in the world. Yes. Help us understand why aluminum is that. So, you know, 75% of... Uh, the world's aluminum ever produced is still in use today, right? So if you think about that, that alone sort of tells you the story, right? So aluminum is is recycled 70%, plastic about 30%, right? So it is, if it's the one substrate that as you recycle it and then melt it down, the molecular structure does not break down. When you compare it to plastic, right, so the molecular structure over time breaks down, right? So when you're talking plastic, you're really talking downcycling, not recycling. So in other words, a um, plastic cup can tomorrow become a yoga mat and uh, then maybe a T-shirt or a plastic bag, but it, it eventually ends up in a landfill. That's, that's the ultimate destination. And the same is pretty much true for all the other substrates. So aluminum is really the only substrate where you could truly say it keeps coming back. Like we like to say at Ball that a cup, you hold a, a can in your hand today, yeah. and 60 days later it can be a can again. Yeah, it occurs to me that there's probably a diet right that I was drinking in the early 90s whose aluminum is still in the system, is what you're saying. 
That's correct. Okay. That's exactly how you should look at it, in particular when you look at um, beverage cans, by the way. Does this mean that we're not mining a lot of new aluminum? Or is it possible that if more people adopt Ball's technology, the demand for aluminum will go up, the system won't support it, and then you're going to result in a bunch of aluminum mining? Well, there, there will be some of that for sure. Um, but again, if you think about avoiding the end game of having landfill after landfill after landfill, we would still advocate that that's a better solution, right? And, you know, we're in the beverage business and, and we are fortunate, um, you know, to be able to state that, you know, most of our cans come from recycled aluminum sources, so it's, you know, definitely the demand will go up, in particular with the plastic crisis that we have. But if you think about it long term and strategically, aluminum is still the better solution for the planet. OK, let's get back to these cups that are at Folsom Field. You made the decision that they be single use. And I thought, OK, well, maybe you're working with a sustainable material, aluminum, but wouldn't you be even more sustainable if you created a reusable cup that people just returned at the end of the game that got washed and used again? Well, you know, we're, we are playing with that. I think you're looking at a um, some cost parameters there that simply don't fit uh, the model in terms of what operators, stadium operators and concessionaires look for these days, right? Oh. So, so, so th- this is simply where, you, it, you know, you're losing the business model if you were to go down that path, you know. And there are other metal cups out there and steel and, and so forth. And, you know, the price point on this is really, you know, uh, honing in on the disposable category. And that's really where the power of this is. You know, the United States is a very convenience-driven um, culture, in particular, you know, and on-premise venues and so forth, right? So... So, you know, so that that's where this really fits and it sort of gives us the first critical strategic step to get the consumer on the path of, of recycling more. OK, uh, members of our staff who have been to a Buffs game had a very important question, which is whether these aluminum cups could become projectiles hurled by angry fans. The, the short answer is they 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 really can't because the the minute you you fill them uh, you know obviously your common sense would indicate you throw them you know everything spills out and again they weigh twenty grams so it's it's not at all of concern um, and it's certainly not anything that we have observed uh, in the first two games that we've had at CU. And you know, even the first game was a that's a that's a bitter rivalry, and we, we yeah. didn't observe any of that. <laughs> okay. So we feel really good about that piece. Do you think aluminum is the answer to other problems? Well, aluminum is is certainly the answer to the plastic crisis um, uh, globally, right? So, and it's abundantly clear that more needs to be done in that area, right? So I read a stat yesterday that. You know, we're, we're on average. You know, we're ingesting a credit card every every week. You know, as a U.S. consumer, which is very scary and and um, not a fun thought to entertain. But we are in a crisis with plastic, right? So this is this is all about really elevating aluminum as the ultimate solution, given the the recyclability of the substrate. 
So, um, you know, is it certainly aluminum plays a, um, a role in other industries as well? Um, other industries are looking at it, like automotive and so forth. Um, but at Ball, we're razor sharply focused on really, um, you know, providing a strategic long-term solution All right. against the plastic crisis. Sebastian Sidoff is general manager of aluminum cups for Ball Corporation in Boulder, which has rolled out these cups at CU's Folsom Field and is in talks, we should say, with other schools. Now, this story got us thinking about another company in Boulder with a mission of eliminating single-use plastic. Vessel is kind of like a bike share, but for coffee cups. Here's CEO Dagny Tucker explaining it to me last November. Essentially, we provide stainless steel cups to cafes for their customers to check out instead of taking a paper or plastic cup. It's free of charge. They leave with that cup. And then they have five days to drop it off anywhere around town at one of our public drop kiosks or participating locations. And the reusable cups are then washed and put back into circulation. Well, we wanted to know how the business model is faring since we first talked. Turns out Vessel has grown. In fact, they launch in Berkeley, California today. Next, the world, says Tucker. New Zealand and Australia reach out a lot, as do a bunch of Asian countries as well. But Canada in particular is passing legislation in 2021. And I think that's gotten the interest of a lot of very large chain restaurants who are looking at how do we address this problem of plastics and single-use disposables, of course, come up as a, a huge problem in that arena. A vessel launched in Boulder in November, and since, Tucker says coffee drinkers have been receptive. For our signups in Boulder, we see 83% of our consumers or customers use vessel repeatedly. So once people are signed up and in the system, it becomes you know, pretty simple, like a library book or something. You check it out, you leave. It's very convenient. And we asked Tucker what she thinks about those new aluminum cups at Folsom Field. Remember, they're designed to be used once. Suffice it to say, she's circumspect. You just, you can't beat reusables in the end because you get so many uses out of that initial spend of raw materials. You get way more uses. At the same time, I would say, you know, as a choice, aluminum's an awesome choice. We have facilities that are able to recycle aluminum, which isn't the case with many, many single-use disposables, including paper cups. And so I think... It's the right direction, and it's unfortunate that it's single-use. We thought, well, maybe we'll talk to them about tech-enabling it so that they can continue to use those over and over again and not just have them have to go back into a system and use the energy to remake them. Dagny Tucker, founder of Vessel, a kind of bike share for coffee cups. Plastic is likely to be an issue at the state legislature again next year. If Environment Colorado is successful, the advocacy group has been gathering signatures statewide to support a ban on certain single-use plastic products like bags and takeout containers. Hannah Colazzo is Environment Colorado State Director. Over 70 million metric tons of plastic end up in our oceans every year. And this isn't something that's just affecting coastal states. We also found that 90% of rainwater samples collected on the Front Range contain what we call microplastics. They're plastics that break down into really tiny pieces. And so we think that banning styrofoam or polystyrene is a really good step in addressing our plastic pollution crisis, as well as making another step in banning plastic bags. 
13 other municipalities here in Colorado have made that step, and we think that Colorado as a state can also do that as well. Legislating plastic statewide is controversial, though. Just last session, a law limiting plastic straws in restaurants died, with some saying it went too far, others saying it didn't go far enough. Meanwhile, more proposed legislation could emerge from an interim committee on zero waste and recycling. Their next meeting is October 22nd. Now, for Plastic Week, I'm keeping a diary on Twitter. I call it my Plastic Diary of Shame. As much as we've heard that plastic pollution is an industry problem, I can't help but consider my own choices. So you can follow me at CPR Warner to see what I struggle with. Like berries. So healthy, so delicious, and so packaged in plastic. So I opted for a pineapple instead. Nature provides the packaging there. Then I started to think of its carbon footprint. Oh, I also needed laundry detergent, so I scanned the shelves of plastic bottles, then gazed at the boxes of detergent at the bottom. Eureka, I thought. Cardboard, not plastic. Then someone pointed out that cardboard has a plastic film with detergent. Another listener suggested a product called Drops Laundry Pods that ship in sustainable packaging. Modern life, not easy, but I encourage you to help me navigate it. My plastic diary of shame is at CPR Warner on Twitter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Prison inmates in Colorado are podcasting, part of an Arts in Prisons initiative. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf got to see some of the production process. My levels? Yeah, I had peanut butter and jelly sandwich for breakfast. Co-host Denise Presson looks over her notes as the producer does a mic check. They've spent the past few days recording interviews and have more scheduled today. Preston says she's been amazed at people's vulnerability throughout this process. You can tell that the guard drops, and I don't know if it's the microphone, I don't know if it's the setting, if it's our energy, but it blows me away at how open people become. She sits at a table covered with audio equipment. Four microphones on stands, recorders, and XLR cables zigzagging across the surface. Preston says she didn't know much about podcasting before this project. I've seen it on TV. That's about it. And I was like, okay, so it's something you subscribe to. Other than that, I have no knowledge. I've been in prison for 10 years. Preston is serving a 42-year sentence for second-degree murder. Today, she's in a vault at the Department of Corrections Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, one that used to store medical records. It's become a makeshift sound studio for the podcast team. Because there's no windows, because we're in a sort of cement room, uh, literally a vault, the sound is really nice. That's Ashley Hamilton. She's the executive producer and a host. She also founded the University of Denver's Prison Arts Initiative. It runs a variety of art classes in 10 prisons. The podcast is a new venture for the initiative. We've never done this before, right? We're figuring this out. Not just how to record and produce a podcast, Since they are in a prison setting, there are lots of logistical challenges. We also live in a society where you and I are used to pulling out our phone to get whatever done that we need to get. You know, we're not working in that structure. When they are all together, they'll work a 10 to 12 hour stretch to get everything done. And because it's no small feat to transport everyone. So in the room right now, we have incarcerated folks who have been moved here from Sterling Correctional Facility and our team from Denver Women's Correctional Facility. What's unusual about that is that Sterling houses men. Hamilton was amazed when the Department of Corrections approved bringing male and female inmates into the same room for this project. Andrew Draper, co-host of Within and a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Draper is 12 years into a life sentence for first-degree murder and arson. 
He listens to podcasts and feels the medium has a certain power. It gives a voice and it gives, there's an emotion and there's an energy that translates that you don't get through the written word. He and Hamilton eventually decided on an interview format for the podcast, incorporating as many voices as possible. I think that it is important to highlight another person's experience because their truth is their truth. Many of the incarcerated people involved in this or chosen for interviews are living most of their lives here for crimes like murder, robbery, and felony menacing. Here are some of the voices from the podcast. If I'm a victim of anything, I'm a victim of myself. You dig what I'm saying? Uh, uh, when, when you think the wrong thoughts, you do the wrong things. My word meant absolutely nothing at that point because I was what everyone else had created me to be. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Lord, please, just let me keep my mind. Just let me hold on to my mind while I'm here. They seem keenly aware of the sorrow they've caused and wonder how to manage that with the life that they are living in its wake. Co-host Denise Presson. And I think that's the ability to go accountability, the responsibility and reparation for that and then to move past that to where I can still live a fulfilling life, whether it's inside or outside of prison. You know, this isn't always just like a, this is my ticket out. What I want to do is have a fulfilling life inside prison also. They're also bringing prison officials into the conversations. They've talked to wardens and staff, and for this taping, they speak with Dean Williams, the head of Colorado's Department of Corrections. Mr. Williams has entered. I'd love to introduce Williams greets everyone in the room and settles behind the mic. It's not long before they get to meaty questions. As a newly appointed prison chief, he got the job in January. What changes does he have planned? What is the purpose of prison? And who deserves to be in prison after they've expressed change or they've shown change? I mean, this is a huge, this is a huge question. <laughs> and I, and I, um, Williams tells them straight up, I don't want you're here because you screwed up. But prison is a place for them to turn their lives around. Afterward, Williams says being interviewed rattled him in a way he didn't expect. Even the people who were not interviewing me, to see them emotional because we're giving voice to something. And what impacted me is that I saw hope in their eyes where maybe hope didn't exist before. Williams says he's witnessed people on the inside lose hope. And it's a, quote, devastating human condition. That's in part why he wants to expand arts programming in Colorado's prisons, whether that be poetry, visual arts, theater, or podcasting. I think art has an incredibly important role behind the walls. I think it humanizes the condition. He believes bringing experiences from the outside will also help people reintegrate back into society when they're released, because 95% of them will be released. For the podcast, the department will screen each episode. William says that's just to make sure there are no security or safety concerns. But he thinks it's good for the podcast to reveal the full picture of prison life. The podcast team is planning 12 episodes for season one. They've been chewing on some big topics. This, like, question around different types of crimes that have different moral value. And dying in prison. They recently interviewed inmates on hospice care and their caretakers. Also gang culture and the role that it plays, not just in prison, but really in society as a whole. Plus rehabilitation versus punishment. If you don't do that look inside, you're not going, you're not going to get anywhere. But what if nobody ever asks you to do that work? Executive producer Ashley Hamilton wants to show the complexity of life in prison and the complexity of the people living there. And that there are folks here who have really important things to say. Co-host Denise Presson has given a lot of thought to who might listen. That victims 
and families of victims might tune in. Nothing I do can bring my victim back. That's the absolute truth in that. She isn't trying to make excuses for what she did. What I do hope is that the public, the people beyond the walls, can see that we are humans and that we are not just our crime. That's the very idea inspiring poet William Graham today. He's serving a 72-year sentence, and for every episode, he writes an original poem. Today's is called The Shift. Ashley Hamilton reads it for the podcast. We are all born unprepared, calling for help, only to discover life is real for us all, standing tall on the shoulders of change, telling ourselves we can do better, we have to do better. They think doing this work on the podcast is helping them do better, and they hope it will inspire others within the system to do better as well. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. On Friday, another dimension of arts in prison, inmates from the Sterling Correctional Facility perform One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Finally, words from legendary broadcaster Cokie Roberts. She died Tuesday at age 75. She was a fixture on NPR, ABC, and PBS. In addition to her political analysis, she was a student of history, or perhaps a master of it, as I found interviewing her in 2005. This was for a public radio show I hosted in Florida called Gulf Coast Live. Has has Congress changed much in a fundamental sense since you began covering it? Yes. The biggest change uh, is the way that computers have helped uh, parties draw district lines. And now members of the House of Representatives, which, of course, was designed by the founders to be the body closest to the people with the every other year election, are now in a position where members choose their voters instead of voters choosing their members uh, because they draw districts that are so safe uh, that it puts them in a position where they're really not accountable. And that is very different from what the founders intended. And it is uh, very different from what was the case even 10 years ago. Gerrymandering, I guess. Well, but gerrymandering has always been with us. I mean, not, <laughs> I mean, Elbridge Gerry was back there, you know, in, in the second Congress. But this is beyond just your normal uh, gerrymandering. This is being able to pick up because there's it's so much more sophisticated now. Little pockets of people who agree with you in various places in the state so that you never have to listen to anybody uh, that you that doesn't see things exactly the same way you do. And that is very different from what used to be the case. It used to be that, yes, uh, members of Congress would like to have a safe district drawn, but a third of that district was likely to be something different. I assume that you find Congress plain fun. Yeah, it's not as much fun as it used to be, but I, it is it is a much more interesting institution to cover than, say, the White House, which is horrible to cover regardless of who the president is, um, because uh, the White House controls the news. Uh, in in Congress, you, know, you can you you go out and find the news. And uh, I always joke: you walk around the Capitol with a microphone in your hand, and you end up using it as a weapon. You know, down boy, down boy. And uh, the uh, the fact is that the ability to ferret out stories, to uh, to pop um, trial balloons, to cut to get the other side is enormous, and uh, that makes it a lot more fun. And the characters are generally more interesting. You said it was less fun today than it used to be. Because we have uh, 
again, the it is more uh, it is it is more plastic, um, more blow dried, um, and people are less friendly. They're less friendly with each other and uh, less friendly uh, with the press. They they just they're not they're not as much fun. Do you notice that they have more handlers? That the, the sort oh, of absolutely. the PR culture has absolutely. really absolutely, and they've all been. A media train within an inch of their lives. I, I remember when George Mitchell was majority leader, and he would talk in exactly eleven second sound bites. I kept saying to him, "Look, Senator, this is public radio. Talk longer." <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's uh, it it makes you quite crazy. Were you always a history buff? Mm-hmm, I think so. Um, I always liked history and. I grew up with history partly because I'm from the South and Southerners spend a lot of time talking about history, uh, but also because I, uh, my parents were both in Congress and I grew up in the Capitol and, and I had some sense of history always and I liked it. Cokie Roberts speaking with me on public radio in Florida in 2005, not long before I came to CPR News. Roberts died Tuesday of complications from breast cancer She was 75. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.